Radiolab is supported by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. WNYC Studios is supported by the Natural Resources Defense Council. Using science, the law, and people power, NRDC is committed to confronting the climate crisis, protecting public health, and safeguarding nature. They address the impact of fossil fuels on communities and our environment. They help protect wildlife, public lands, and irreplaceable ecosystems that all living things depend on. They work to enact policies for clean air, clean water, and access to nature for all. You can help NRDC safeguard the earth for future generations. Visit nrdc.org slash WNYC for more information. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Oh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <coughs> you're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. See? So do you want to start? Do you want to wait? Hold on. I'm just... Up Lulu to you. has a whole idea here. Oh, we're... Uh, hey, I'm Latif Nasser. I'm Lulu Miller. She's just texting me. Let's who see. was running late. This is Radio Lab. Well, the question Lulu wanted me to ask you to start, actually, is mm. what do you think butts are for? What do I think butts are for? Um, I mean, I th- I think they're a... It's a portable cushion to sit on, right? Huh. <laughs> the cheeks, I'm thinking the cheeks are like a portable... Okay, so today on Radiolab, we're going to share with you all a conversation that we had with our contributing editor, well, I'm not quite Heather sure. Radke. I can tell yeah, over the last few years, Heather has been putting her blood, her sweat, her tears, her back into a book all about... Butts. Specifically, the butt cheeks. Yeah, the cheeks. The junk in the trunk. The booty in the back. Straight up, it's a book about the cheeks, not the whole. So if you're looking for butthole stuff, it's not here. It's not happening. No. But Heather's book, it's called Butts, A Backstory, is, uh, it's pretty hefty. (laughs) And cheeky and juicy. Uh, But no, seriously, it is a deep thing on something that we don't usually think that deeply about. The gluteus maximus, which is the butt muscle, it's one of like three butt muscles. It goes into the why and how of the butt muscle. Yeah, there's like a little bit of a debate. Is the butt for running or is it more for like jumping? Not for cushions, apparently. Uh, But also... There's this other part, which is actually the part that's like way more complicated and fraught, which is the fat part. Because Heather explained it's the fat that makes the butt the thing that society obsesses over. And that's why, like, the Brazilian butt lift is one of the most popular cosmetic surgery procedures in America today. Brazilian butt lift? I've never heard of such a thing. Oh, my God, Latif. You're going to learn why so is much it Brazil? when you read my book. <laughs> okay, great. I'm so excited. What's up? Oh, hi. Hey, I'm Lulu. so sorry I'm late. I've been so excited for this for weeks. So just keep going and I will orient as you go. Okay, so I guess the, just the like to finish this thought, Latif, it's like, so... Butts are also highly sexualized. Right. So there's a question that becomes like, is part of the reason 
they look they, the way they do is because of sexual selection, not just natural selection. And I guess your book kind of looks at how even just in a few different eras, which are pretty mm-hmm. close to one another, just how much the the in vogue but in a certain society changes. Right, that becomes the question. Yeah. Because, you know, like elbows, for example, we don't put a lot of meaning into how elbows look. But what a butt looks like is like, it's a sign of beauty. It's a sign of disgust. It's been highly racialized. It's like was used to put people into hierarchies. And there's a real question of like, why have butts come to mean so much when they could just mean nothing. And so a lot of the book is sort of an exploration of of all the things they've come to mean and why they've come to mean that. Well, yeah. I mean, so what is the one... So we talked about butts from every possible angle. But the part of the conversation we want to play for you today, pretty much straight through, actually, uh, was about more than just the butt. Yeah, because at a certain point in Heather's reporting, she uncovered this moment in time where the ideal that so many of us measure our bodies up against, not just our butts, our whole bodies, became concrete in a way that even today still haunts us. Yeah. All right. Go for it. So I want to tell you about two statues that were made in the, the late 1930s, the early 1940s. Okay. They were created by these two artists. Or actually, one guy was a gynecologist and one guy was an artist, Dickinson and Belsky. A classic gyno art duo. (laughs) So Belsky is the artist, Dickinson's the gynecologist. And these guys were trying to make these statues. One was of a man and one was of a woman. And they were called Norma and Norman. And Norman is spelled N-O-R-M-M-A-N. So it's like Norm Norm man. Okay. <laughs> Norm man. He's so, normal. Well, you kind of get what they were probably up to. They, they weren't trying to be coy, I think. Right. <laughs> yeah. So they were part of a kind of eugenicist push in the 1930s to show people what like a good body is. So the people... Well, yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Just one thing that just popped to mind when you first said it before you went into the eugenics route. Um, was this, were these statues supposed to be like, oh, this is the average person? Or mm. was it like, this is the exemplary person? This well, is the- I mean, lots of you hit on it right there. It's the, so one of the things yeah. that's so interesting about these statues is, and this time, is that the normal is the exemplary. Mm. So, okay, first of all, the purpose of them was they were going to go into the American Museum of Natural History in New York. They were going to be put on display there to show the everyday New York person what, like, a normal American body should look like. Yeah. Right? And the 30s in America and the 30s across the world were a time when people were trying to optimize humans. It was a time obsessed with data and, like, new data was available. And what they were actually doing was they were like, we're going to make statues of the perfectly average, the perfectly normal American. So it turns out if you want, if it's 1939 or eight or whatever, and you want to make the average American man, it's very easy because of the, the military. Wait, why? So, you know, when you go into the military, they measure you. So they had all that from World War I, but they actually had no data for women. They looked and looked and looked. The data wasn't as easy to come by. And then they found a data set. And it's a pretty exciting data set for many reasons. This is where Heather's story about eugenics and the birth of Norma, the perfectly average woman, 
crosses paths with another notable arc in our history, starting back in the 1800s, which is the way we make the clothes we wear. We're talking about the 19th century. We're talking about the rise of the garment industry. Mm. You're, now you should be thinking like sweatshops, New York City, like the cotton is coming up from the South. They're turning it into clothes for an increasing large white-collar male workforce. Hmm. So a huge amount of money is going into garment manufacturing. And in order to make money, you're always trying to lower costs yeah. of production, right? So if you can have a machine that cuts everything, you know, it's like, let's say you have, like, ideally you have three sizes, small, medium, large. You have one machine that's cutting small, one machine that's cutting medium, one machine that's cutting large, right? So if you have... A hundred sizes, all of a sudden it costs you a lot more, right? Hmm. right? So the more nuanced, the less profitable. Exactly. And there had been a sizing system for men, but half mm -hmm. the population is still having to make all of their own clothes or hiring someone to make all of their own clothes. Because of economics or because they can't afford it? or No, the, why? the half is women. Oh, the half is women. Okay, <laughs> so there aren't sizes really at all? For women? Or they're just, yeah. Not really. And I mean, they're trying because they realize, yeah, because the men's size is here. like going yeah. like gangbusters. It's like really helpful. Mm -hmm. And catalog shopping had become this really big thing. You know, it's like Sears catalog is like everyone's buying out of the Sears catalog, but people, women were sending back all these clothes because they didn't fit. But then in the 30s, this woman named Ruth O'Brien comes along and she's at the Bureau of Home Economics. Which was a bureau? Of the government, yeah. Okay. A bureau of, like, the U.S. government? Yeah. Ruth's decided that she's going to try to tackle the problem of coming up with the standard set of clothing sizes for women. And oddly enough, she actually ends up confronting the same problem that Dickinson and Belsky had when they're trying to create Norma, which is that they don't have enough data. Like, what is a woman's body actually look right. like. And so like, if you're going to, I mean, it makes sense, right? If you and I, if the three yeah. of us were like, let's figure out a sizing system, it feels like the first thing we'd want to do is be like, all right, so what are the different sizes of bodies? Yeah. And it's the, it's the 30s. So the WPA hires women across the country to go out into hmm. to little towns and whatever. They're called measuring squads. Wow. And they, <sighs> I just know. <laughs> Like measure their neighbors? Well, it's like they have these little measuring parties, kind of, and they, like, oh women gather. They put on these kind of government-issued bras that are, like, you know, those, like, bandeau <laughs> bras, like, that are just, like, <laughs> boob covers and little yeah. cotton undies. I think there's, like, 26 different measurements, so it's, like, elbow to their wrist, their mm. thigh girth, their heel length, these kinds of things. So they're measured a gajillion different ways. And the idea was to try to find, like, as many different kinds of American women, but, like, let's put a specially large asterisk there. <laughs> so how did they... <laughs> okay, so there were some, some problems with this, as you might guess. One is that older women didn't want to do this. So <laughs> a lot of the, the data skewed younger, and they had to adjust for that. The other thing was that Ruth O'Brien erased all the data from non-white women. Whoa. What Wait, was okay, that but, about? But they didn't get, but if they had to erase it, you had to get some, right? Well, so, okay, so imagine it this way. It's like, I'm like Suzy Q measurer, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to put an ad in the newspaper in Cleveland or Cincinnati or whatever and say, come to this place. Maybe you every, everyone gets a cracker or they get some money or something. And some of the people who come are not white. And especially, let's just remember... This is a time when white is also like 
Italians probably weren't considered white. Eastern Europeans, Jewish women, these people were probably not white, not considered white. So, you know, some maybe a Jewish woman, maybe a black woman shows up. So Ruth O'Brien actually says in her materials that we should still measure these women so as to not create bad feelings amongst the group. But then we will throw out the data. Whoa. What, that's so just, just so, I'm not, so we're getting this data, but I don't care? I know. It's so weird. It's and so weird. And you would also and, think... Oh, sorry, go. Well, yes. You would also think women who are not white buy clothes. And so Correct. maybe it That's would what be I was about to say. That it's in their financial best interest. It's in the garment industry's financial best interest to have this be as representative of the, as many people as possible. I mean, I think, I guess a, th- a thought I've had about it, and this just is like further racist, it's just more specifically racist, is... You know, at this point in history, race wasn't just being codified based on skin color, but on but also based on morphological difference, invented or not. And so probably she was thinking something like, well, if we have Black women and Italian women and Jewish women, the clothes won't fit white women. And did it seem to even though it was only for white women, did it seem to... Like, did women clump to the sizes? Like, like was oh, there a, like a, like an obvious small, That's, medium, large? Or was so, it like just like... So we're going to talk about that. And it's a whole complicated answer. But let me... I'm just going to... First, let's talk about Dickinson and Belsky and what happened with the statues, Norma and Norma. Okay, great. So they found Ruth's data and they were like super psyched because as we have discussed, it was a time of data and they, I, I mean, for sure they thought that thing about the her throwing out all the non-white people was a feature, not a bug, you know. And they made these statues and then they were first displayed at the American Museum of Natural History as part of like one of those eugenics congresses and people could come and see them, you know, just like they go see the T-Rex now. Can we take a second to all look at Norma and Norman together? Okay, yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, I just found one. Or you oh. probably have one. You want to okay. just shoot it in the Slack? Well, I'll send... Uh, there's this... There was a cat... Here, I'll put it in the... Yeah, put it in the Slack. Okay, let's see. Or the chat. Whatever. Oh, that's Norm? Oh, Norm. Oh, yeah. Wait, this this is a good one, too. This is... Oh. It is weird looking at these statues, these white alabaster visions of the eugenicist brain and the eugenicist vision. Like, it it, it feels almost like looking at something evil to look at them. I mean, it does, it, it does, it does do that. It also, there's also something about it, though, that is, feels ridiculous a little bit. Like, when I look at Norma, first of all, she has no body hair, which is, I find weird. Although, mm-hmm. Norman oh, does. Oh, my God, you're right. Oh, Norman does, naked. and Norman does. Like, how messed I up. I also think her breasts are so strange. Like, it's like somebody who had never seen breasts. Sculpted just breasts. Just them to They her. put two <laughs> grapefruits on a torso. Yeah, so he's got, so they're naked. You're right. So, Norm, Norman has, like, a pubic hair, and she does not. Yes, yeah. yes, she does not. Hmm. And I think, I mean, I have a picture. It took me a long time to actually get a picture of her from behind, which I always oh, yeah. right. So, you, so oh, tell so us about her that. butt. Yeah, what? Tell us, tell about, us her about her butt. I mean, it's very, no- it's very normal. <laughs> I don't know how to say it. It's, it's like normal. exactly the butt you imagined on the other side. Huh. It's, um, 
It's like not that big. It's not that flat. It's sort of a little bit strong. It's kind of pert. It doesn't seem like it would like fill out a pair of pants completely, if that makes any sense. <laughs> but they're, but, but seeing them in this, there's this one picture here with them side by side and they look like robots. They're standing stick straight and they're just these like specimens of... Like Stepford wives or something? Yeah, there you go. It's like a Stepford well, wife and, and husband that are just like... One of the things yeah. about them is like, they're not artistic. Like there's like, like they're so, like you're saying, they're like ramrod straight. It's like, it's not meant to evoke something um, emotional. It's meant to invoke something intellectual, maybe? Yeah. It's just like, here is normal. Come behold. Yeah, come behold normal. And, you know, okay, so normal is a very exciting idea at this moment in history for reasons that I think we can be critical of and also sympathetic towards. Mm -hmm. Like, this is, you know, World War II is happening in this era. Like, the other headlines in the newspaper are like, Hiroshima bombed. Yeah, right. And it's like a big moment where like people are like, I'd really like for my person who's fighting in the war to come home and maybe like we just get married and have like a pretty simple, straightforward life. Like you can sort of see why in this moment, mm. normal mm. and Norman right. and Norma is an appealing idea. Mm-hmm. Like even in, even though we can be kind of critical of it. I also think it's like, like I'm saying, it's Great kind point. of a reasonable yeah, yeah. thing. Okay. Okay. And so then after they were displayed at the American Museum of Natural History, they were bought by this hygiene museum in mm-hmm. Cleveland. And hygiene museums are a very eugenicist project. They're like the guy who ran this museum. He was, he had his thing is like, I want people to want to be normal. So, <laughs> and when I say normal, I want them to be like properly white, et cetera, et cetera, all the stuff that we've been talking about. So he decides that he's going to have a contest to find the most normal girl <laughs> in Cleveland. <laughs> and like, was it truly a contest? It was like... Yes. So this is like okay. big news in Cleveland. Like it's in the Cleveland Plain Dealer. So they're ha- what they're encouraging women to do is measure themselves and send in their measurements. <laughs> So all these women are sending in their measurements, like your ankle width and your like knee to hip ratio. Mm. It's not just like, you know, like when you measure for clothes, you measure like three or four things. This is okay. 10 or 12 things and you're sending this in. Uh, all told 3,864 women enter wow. this contest. Wow. Yeah. How, how, how many, serve, like, how many winners are there in this contest, do you think? None. Mm. I don't think any are, like, exactly Norma. That's my guess. I think there's one winner. Well, you're sort of both right. None of them are Norma's measurements. But they had to choose a winner because they did all this right. stuff. So, so they choose this woman named Martha Skidmore, who's the most normal girl in Cleveland. And she apparently is um, the closest. And she also like just so perfectly fits the story of the time. Mm. She's the ticket taker at the local movie theater. Mm. She has recently quit her job as like a gauge grinder at a factory so that like the boys coming home can have have the job back. And this is the quote from the newspaper. She likes to swim, dance, and bowl and thought she was an average individual in her taste and nothing out of the ordinary had ever happened to her until the Norma oh search came along. <laughs> until oh, the, the or- act of being chosen herself as the norm- most normal made her the- not normal anymore. <laughs> wow. 
And then I tried to track her down. I like really tried. She's dead, but I tried to find some people who had knew her or something. I found her obituary and, you know, you we, we can't know how the rest of her life planned out, but she, you know, the obituary suggests she did have a pretty like, quote unquote, normal life for the rest of her life. She had a couple of kids. She never left Ohio. Hmm. And that's all we know about Martha Skidmore. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to hear how Norm Man and Norma are still haunting us and all of our bodies today. And we will actually hear about a living, breathing, modern-day, flesh-and-blood Norma. Radiolab is supported by Babbel. Sometimes self-improvement can feel like a pretty overwhelming journey. So what if this year you just got a tiny bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. Babbel is a science-backed language learning app with quick 10-minute lessons that have been handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. You can learn everything you need to have real-world conversations, café s'il vous plaît, from vocabulary words to culture and more. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a few months or a full year. Here is a special limited-time deal for Radiolab listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash radiolab. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash radiolab, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Radiolab. Rules and restrictions may apply. Radiolab is supported by Zbiotics. If you've been looking for some help waking up refreshed after a fun night out, Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic is here to help. Zbiotics is a genetically engineered probiotic invented by scientists to help tackle rough mornings after drinking. This probiotic is the first drink of the night for a better tomorrow as it works to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com slash Radiolab to get 15% off your first order when you use Radiolab at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money-back guarantee. If you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com slash Radiolab and use the code Radiolab at checkout for 15% off. While some colleges ramped up police presence on campus, others responded to protest against Israel's war in Gaza by giving students a seat at the table. I'm Kai Wright, and on the next Notes from America, meet a young negotiator from Brown University. We'll explore what divestment actually means and how views of victory in this movement vary depending on where you sit. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Lulu. Latif. Radio Lab. We are back with our contributing editor, Heather Radke, talking about her new book, Butts, a backstory. And when we left off, she was she told us the story about how this one data set of women, almost entirely white women, planted the seed for this statue 
Norma, who was supposed to be the perfectly average woman back in the 1930s. And now we're going to take it from the museum where the statues are to the dressing room. How that same data set was part of a giant manufacturing puzzle. It is part of what for many is kind of just a personal hell of trying to find a piece of clothing that actually fits your body. Okay, so we talked about Ruth O'Brien's study. And I kind of... I kind of love this and also hate it because it's like in a very practical way, this would be a good problem to have solved at some point. Out of her data, she creates like 26 or 27 different sizes. Huh. That's too many. Clearly too many, right. (laughs) We still kind of use a version of this. So the garment industry sort of takes her 26 size sizes and then turns it into like this a version of the sizing system we have now for women, which is like 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12. There's not 26 sizes. Even if you had the 26 sizes, it probably still wouldn't work because human bodies are diverse enough that they're consistently resisting the standardization mm. of sizing. Wait, there's no odd number sizes? <laughs> No. Do you, really? Does it work? Do men have the same size? No. Oh, they don't? No. They don't have... Wait, you live your whole life without 2, 4, 6, they have, 8, 10, 12? Lulu, you know how men's sizes Logic? work? I know what I am. I don't know what anybody else is. What are you? Okay, so for my pants, let's say, right? Um, yeah. I'm like sometimes a 28, sometimes a 29. Oh, because that's the actual inches. Yeah, that's the thing. Oh, that's different. That's, that's different, not a size. That's thing. just like that's a no, 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 that's no. Just like a, that's why it's smart. Wait, men don't have like no. size pants. They just have. Well, oh my god, we're in different reality. No, no, shopping they reality. do have size Completely. pants. They're just they make sense. It's like the twenty nine <laughs> is. It's like twenty nine inch twenty nine inches or whatever. Right. A two a size eight has no meaning of any yes. kind. <laughs> So weird. Okay, I just need a moment from that, my mind being blown at that, like, men don't go to their Forever 21 section and have, no. like, <laughs> sizes as well. Okay, but in the story, yeah. after Ruth gets a decent data set and then messes it up by throwing away anyone who's a person of color, apparently, mm-hmm. does that literally then turn into sizes? It does. It's not just like, here's a recommendation. It's like, no, that no, no. is it our is, It's sizes. a recommendation, and then it becomes... Yeah. Standard, I mean... She recommends 26 sizes. Yeah, and then they're like, "That's we're not doing that. That's undoable, but we'll do 10. And then they come up with a different set. Right. And based on her data. Based on her data. Then that sizing system, they keep it for a while as like the rule, if that makes any sense. Like that's like, like this is how it's supposed to be. Then mm-hmm. it becomes optional. By the 70s, it it's becomes compl- optional. By the 70s, it's optional. By the 80s, it's like Good, completely Meaning like a company, arbitrary. if they had their own schema that they wanted to use, they could use it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, basically, it means that like a size 8 is no longer standardized. And now... Right, which seems stupid. So what happens is like, okay, I work at H&M or whatever, Levi's or so, one of these companies. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to make a pair of jeans. First, I design the pair of jeans on... A mannequin. Yeah. So a mannequin is like pretty far from human. It's <laughs> hard and immobile. And these things actually kind of start to matter in a way like I hadn't actually thought that much about. <laughs> like, um, Doesn't have digestion. It's not like going to need the expandable waistband if you ate the plate of nachos. Right. All yeah. right. So they design it on the mannequin. 
The next step after that is they get their fit model to come in and try it on. A fit model? Yeah. Because there is one person who every garment fits. What? It's a fit model. So, so like, uh, like, like the king, the king's foot. Yeah, basically. Except it's like She's a king. woman named Natasha, whose <gasps> whose butt is the butt that jeans companies use to make make the jeans. Even fit. different company. I would have imagined that there was one king for each company, but there's one king for even multiple companies. She's the king. She's the king for like seven or eight companies, and it's like she's like got wow. the the. But du jour. She's got like the sort of body du jour for the... Who chose her? How was she chosen? She just, How was she anointed? She, went, she was like... How was she crowned? She was like a in college and she went with her friend to pick up a check at her modeling company and the the eight modeling agent was like, hey, you kind of got like a good, a good butt basically. Like look, maybe you want to do some fit modeling. And then these companies like her because her... Basically her butt's not too small and it's not too big. Is her life just like incredible and she just walks around and she has <laughs> like everything like fits. no problems at all? Because <laughs> like, everything, everything modeled fits. off her body. I mean, I think clothes yeah. fit her really well. And wow. And she's kind of, it's kind of the thing I think about is like she's the only person they fit. I mean, <laughs> unless you have Why? her exact body, you know, and her exact measurements. I mean, she tried, and you know, it's like this whole process. She tries them on several times she like helps them i mean she's lovely you know it's like not her fault that she's mm. like no sure she makes sure that the like the belt loops are in the right place and yeah and and she's a white lady i'm white guessing. lady yeah in la is it the ruth o'brien constructed butt though were they like wow you're exciting to us because you're so norm quote unquote normal is it like you are it is a little like she's norma She's the new Norma. She's the new Norma. I mean, it's a little, there's like some ways it's different than Norma, but it's, I I think the idea is that normal is actually this kind of ideal. It's a fantasy, just like perfect or best or, you know, most beautiful is because there's kind of no such thing. There was no such thing with Norma. I guess if we are going to call Natasha the most normal lady in the world, there is one person who fits that ideal, but like no one else does. And also like Natasha, you know, she's a relatively thin white woman. You know, I'm not sure we would quite call her average either in the sense that like the average American woman weighs surely more than her and has very different proportions than her. Hmm. So, but at least that's a that's like a real person who exists who we know those those proportions make sense. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because this is what happens. They take the thing they made for the mannequin and then they give it to Natasha and she puts it on and she's like, actually, like, there's a huge gape in the front. Or like, when I pull up these pants, the belt loops are going to fall off. I kind of love this part because it's like about having an actual (laughs) body, no matter how perfect your body is. Like, the fact that it's like fleshy and has a digestive system and needs to, like, sit down. Mm. And, like, sweats. I mean, yeah, so what is the fit? Is it just, like, in a nice, clean, air-conditioned room? Or are they like, go take them for a spin for two days and make sure you run some stressful errands so that you sweat? (laughs) No, it's not like that. But it is, like, they do several rounds of this where she'll sort of try on, like, a a first draft and they'll go, like, through several drafts. Interesting. And basically, like, they try, they make them fit her perfectly. Yeah. You know, that, so, like, let's say she's a size six. 
they're making her to be the size six. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, I'm not a size six. Most people aren't. So they have to make size two, four, eight, 12. And that is a matter of proportion. And it's all mathematical measurement. So there's no, it's not like there's a size. There's no other, no. there's like a two Natasha. There's not a, a two Natasha. or four, an eight, a 12 Natasha. But huh. you can sort of start to see how this might be flawed. I know. Right? So it is possible that no human being actually fits, fits any of the other sizes. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that is insane. Yeah. Because I keep, I keep imagine, trying to imagine like analogs to in other industries. Well, I think one way I think about it is like this. It's like manufacturing was meant for like if you make a car, okay, we're going to get iron ore, turn it into something that's uniform, and then we're going to turn that thing into the hood of your car, and we're going to make them all exactly the same. In this case, bodies cannot be forced into that kind of interchangeability, but we have to treat them as though they're interchangeable in order to be, I mean, in order to make clothes for them, like for cheap, basically. Like we have to treat our bodies like they're all the same, even though they are not in any way the same at all. Maybe is it because as the expectations of fashion have gotten more brutal, it's like, have it be, Mm. it's not, it's like, sure, a, a small, medium, large T-shirt could probably fit everyone. But as we want, like, a well-tailored pant that's tight here but yeah. loose here and has room to breathe. And, like, maybe it's just that our – that fashion is right. getting, like, the tunic and the belt worked. Right. But we as got, we, we got want, too picky. We want, you know, like, a, like I just – that – maybe it's just that as fashion's closing in and we want every millimeter to look good. And it's not – yeah, I think that's right. Because it's not just that we want it to look good. It's that we have important – we have imparted this idea of what it means to have something fit you. Right. Like, I mean, it's the it's the moment in the dressing room where you're like, why, why doesn't anything fit my body? Something's wrong with my body. It means something to us when clothes fit or don't fit. And it doesn't mean something about the clothes. It means something about us. Mm. Like we, we ascribe the problem to our bodies rather than to the object. And you're saying like that, that humiliating feeling, feeling of not measuring up, like, I think something many people have been told is like, oh, it's a false standard of beauty, like normalcy isn't real. But to see it so nakedly laid out, like you finding that creation story of a norm and a norma, like, Mm -hmm. there's something that is relief that you can just be like, this is a specific concept of norm that like, I can just reject because I don't like their science. I don't like their mission. Like, yeah. it doesn't matter if it doesn't fit because that's Norma. And that is a monster I don't want to be haunted by. There's something empowering about you finding its genesis story. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think I said this last time, too. It's like, I sort of love now that, like, the idea that bodies can't be fit into these mechanized creations. Like, that... Mm-hmm. It's like the 20th century and the 19th century, too, to some extent. It's like all these people are trying so hard to make bodies into interchangeable parts, but they can't be. And it's because, like, we're all sort of specific and particular and exciting in our own ways. And I don't know. It's sort of corny, maybe. Or is it like you'll just never dream of something fitting because you're like, it never will. Bodies are cooler than fashion industry or bodies are more expansive. Yeah, I mean, I think that would be the ideal. But then at the same time, I mean, actually, this is in the conclusion of the book. Like I, at the same time, I, you know, I go and I try and close and I still feel like Mm. you can't unbrainwash. 
Like it's like, like even knowing that work that you way. can't stop projecting the like yeah. yeah does knowledge bust shame does knowledge like bust your shame yeah does it or do you no, f- yeah do you- no of course it doesn't but it does you know what it does is like you can sort of go in that dressing room and you can try on your jeans and you can be like oh dang I wish these jeans fit me and then you can sort of be like but they don't they fit Natasha yeah <laughs> and, and Norma. And, and it's not, I, I can sort of tell myself a different story. Yeah. It's the story isn't, there's something wrong with my body. My butt's too big. My thighs are the wrong proportions. Whatever the story is that you're telling yourself about your body. I have like a, a different story, which is like the sizing can never work. Even if they wanted it to, they can't make it work. Mm. And this isn't supposed to fit, you know? That was our contributing editor, Heather Radke. Her book, But a Backstory, will be out very soon. You can find a link to pre-order it on our website, radiolab.org. And just biggest thanks to Heather for sharing this story with us for all the years of research it took to find it and make it. It really is a special book. It's kind of a Trojan horse of a book that looks silly on the outside, but is deep on the inside. I at least came away thinking very differently about my own body and the times that it feels like it doesn't fit. So thanks. This episode was produced by Matt Kilty with sound and music from Matt Kilty and Jeremy Bloom and mix from Jeremy Bloom. Special thanks to Alexandra Primiani and Jordan Rodman. That's it for us. Uh, we're we're going to go to a uh, watch party for our favorite sitcom, The Most Normal Girl in Cleveland. Uh, we'll see you next time. Pass the unbuttered popcorn. Pass the unbuttered popcorn. <laughs> Pass the unbuttered popcorn. Is just... <laughs> Radio Lab was created by Jad Abumrad and is edited by Soren Wheeler. Lulu Miller and Lapis Nasser are our co-hosts. Susie Lechtenberg is our executive producer. Dylan Keith is our director of sound design. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Jeremy Bloom, Becca Bressler, Rachel Cusick, Akedi Foster Keys, W. Harry Fortuna, David Gable, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Sindhu Nyanasambandan, Matt Kilty, Annie McEwen, Alex Neeson, Sarah Kari, Ana Rascuet Paz, Sarah Sandback, Ariane Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster, with help from Andrew Vinales. Our fact checkers are Diane Kelly, Emily Krieger, and Natalie Middleton. I'm calling from Colchester in Essex, UK. Leadership support for Radiolab Science Programming is provided by the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, Science Sandbox, Seyman's Foundation Initiative, and the John Templeton Foundation. Foundational support for Radiolab was provided by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. NYC Now delivers breaking news, top headlines, and in-depth coverage from WNYC and Gothamist every morning, midday, and evening. By sponsoring our programming, you'll reach a community of passionate listeners in an uncluttered audio experience. Visit sponsorship.wnyc.org to learn more.